The following podcast contains explicit language. My thighs are on his shoulders, mm-hmm. and my head is hanging down. So your stomach back. is against his back. Your my head is like in his grundle. My head is in his grundle, right in his grundle. His elbows are hooked around my knees. Hello, and welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's podcast about sex. I'm New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor, and with me today in studio is the writer Joe Piazza, whose new book, How to Be Married, What I Learned on Five Continents About Surviving My First Really Hard Year of Marriage, is on sale now. It had me crying and laughing and gasping within like the first 10 pages, and then it just kept going. That was my goal. I loved it, Joe. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what was harder, your first year of marriage or writing about your first year of marriage, a whole book about it. Writing a whole book <laughs> about my first year of marriage was harder, both for me and for my husband, who is the most patient and kind man on the planet, to say, hey, yeah, of course, not only should you move across the country, let's get married. We got married in nine months, too, mm-hmm. after we met. And then write about our marriage like it's an open book. And write about our sex life like it's an open book. And my mother's going to read this book. She's actually <laughs> throwing us a book party in Milwaukee. And I'm like, has she read all of it? Yeah, he's like, she likes it a lot. (laughs) That's crazy. So tell me, how did this project come together? I had dated everyone in New York City. Like, it was Mm -hmm. done. There was no one left for me to date. I went on a trip to the Galapagos Islands for work. I was a travel editor. Mm -hmm. And there was this California dude there who was not my type at all. But Mm -hmm. we were stuck on a boat together for 10 days and ended up kind of falling for each other. And three months later, get engaged. Nine Mm -hmm. months later, get married. And I realize, shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. Because no one gives you actionable advice about how to make a marriage happy and successful. We don't talk about the next 50 years. We don't talk about the mundane things of how to actually be a happy married couple. And so I was this travel editor at Yahoo, and I got to travel all over the world asking people impolite questions about their lives. It was like, so what restaurant should I eat at in Istanbul? And... How do you keep married sex interesting? <laughs> and so I would ask everyone from you know, cab drivers to waiters in restaurants to lawmakers. And so I really used the job to get to crowdsource marriage advice from around the world. And so you ended up visiting, what is it, 14 countries? 15? We did 20 countries on five continents, and I wanted to go to Antarctica really bad. <laughs> like, I actually I wanted all seven. Like, I, I thought that was like a prize. And <laughs> Collect them all. But Antarctica's hard because there's just penguins there. But then I got pregnant and I couldn't make it because I didn't want to go on a boat to the middle of nowhere. Oh, my God. Is that the only reason you didn't talk to the penguins? The only reason I didn't interview the penguins about marriage. Great. You can really hold that against your kids someday. Oh, I already do. (laughs) I tell him all the time. How far pregnant are you now? Just about eight months. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And now you're doing your book tour. So the baby is just... You line up everything, right? Very efficient. You meet the guy. Within three months, you're engaged. (laughs) After 35 years of fucking everything up, I'm like finally lining everything up so that it works out. You write in the very beginning of your book about shortly after marrying him, you find out that you have a really high likelihood of having muscular dystrophy. And you sort of ascribe that as something of an impetus, maybe. And do you think that that shaped the way you approached the beginning of your marriage or just the way you approach marriage in general? I think so. Yeah, because it was this big It was kind of a crisis moment. I don't think it was a crisis moment in our marriage. My Mm -hmm. husband took it much better than I did. Um, But I married this man who loves climbing everything. 
He wants to do every adventure under the sun. He wants to ski. He wants to hike. He wants to climb a mountain. Uh, and I I lived in Manhattan for 13 years where mm-hmm. and hardly laced up my sneakers and hiked <laughs> up anything. But to marry someone like that and then realize that you might be in a wheelchair in 10 years, we don't know, but I have this gene. It's a high likelihood. was terrifying. I was terrified he would be my caretaker. I was terrified that he wouldn't want to stay married to me. And his answer to it was, all right, you want to climb a mountain? Well, you can still walk. (laughs) And then you did. And then we did. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We, like, didn't just climb a mountain. (laughs) You climbed the mountain. Well, it wasn't Everest. (laughs) (laughs) It was, like, the second big mountain. But, um, you got to save something for the 10-year anniversary. No, exactly. <laughs> We've we got to take the kids somewhere. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We set, we set up this big trip, and I was scared. I was nervous I wouldn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in fine shape, but it's a big mountain. And then what ends up happening is, is that my very mountain manny husband couldn't make it up the mountain. <laughs> that he, we're, like, we're staring at the peak. The peak is right there. We've gone through four days of hell. Mm-hmm. Climbing Mount Kilimanjaro is hell, by the way. And he got altitude sickness. And there's nothing you can do about it. You go back down the mountain. How did that play out between the two of you dealing with that? He told me to keep going. And I was like, no. I'm like, I'm going to carry you down this mountain. And it it was this big realization for me because I was like, I was convinced that my husband was going to become my caretaker. And I didn't want that in life. Yeah. And it made me realize, one, we have no idea what the hell is going to happen to us next. Yeah. I could get muscular dystrophy in 10 years, or we could get hit by a car tomorrow. And we also don't know which one of us is going to play which role in our marriage on any given day or any given hour. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to be flexible and be ready for whatever life ends up throwing at you. It sounds like also you discovered that caretaking is part of loving him. It is Like part you of were taking him. care of him, you yeah. know, that it... I didn't realize that before. I didn't realize that part of my role was to really take care of him and that he needed me. Like I mm-hmm. talk a lot in the beginning of the book about him needing to feel needed. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to, I think it was for the first time in my life, to really take on this nurturing role and to know that I could take care of another human being. Wow. Good preparation for what's coming <laughs> next. Speaking of climbing things... Tell me about the North American Wife Carrying Championship. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. It really is. Not only do you, well, you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together, but you also climbed some other steep inclines. We did. We did indeed. (laughs) So we first get married and we were talking to all these marriage therapists who were like, do something challenging. Learn to really work together as a team. And that's when I discovered the North American Wife Carrying Championships. (laughs) Explain so, this race. Wife to us. carrying is actually a Finnish sport. It's something they really do in Finland. Um, they're, and they're deadly serious about it. So you literally are carrying, it's like tough mutter, but while carrying a woman. <laughs> and so you're literally carrying your wife through an obstacle course, over logs, over hurdles, through mud pits, up a ski slope. So up a mountain. And the world championships are mm-hmm. in Finland. We couldn't make it there. It was very expensive. I had no travel assignments. But the qualifier was in Maine. <laughs> and we could make it to Maine. Yeah. And even better than that, the prize is actually the wife's weight in beer. <laughs> I need everyone to Google YouTube videos of this because at the end of the race, they put the wife on a seesaw. 
mm-hmm. and just start putting cases of beer <laughs> on the other side of the seesaw until they even out. We also went into this race super cocky, being like, we can win this. <laughs> Who the hell participates in a wife-carrying race anyway? But little did we know that people that participate in wife-carrying races are wildly, wildly into wife-carrying races. <laughs> we were the least qualified couple there. By far. <laughs> and it turns out that we you race in heat, so it's just two couples going at once. We were racing against last year's wife-carrying champions, who all of a sudden, they're just gone. They're just off. <laughs> oh, and I have to note, the way you carry your wife is not what you're thinking. All of you are thinking piggyback, I know. You're uh, like, yes, of course, a woman is piggyback. No, that is not how you do this. It is not the piggyback carry. It is not the fireman's carry. It is the Estonian method. My thighs are on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And my head is hanging down. So your stomach back. is against his back. Your my head is like in his grundle. My head is in his grundle. Right in his grundle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's holding, his elbows are hooked around my knees. Oh, got it. Okay, yeah. I was picturing that wrong the whole time. Yeah. And we ended up getting the second to last slowest time in the North American Wife Carrying Championships. But he didn't drop me. And a lot of wives got dropped. Yeah. So there, one part of the race is a freezing mud pit. And a lot of wives ended up in that mud pit. And I didn't. He, he, he carried me. And it felt like this huge... We'd only been married a month. And it felt like this huge accomplishment for us. And we're like, wow, we did this thing that was hard and strange. And also the best story. Also such an argument against heterosexuality. Absolutely. What? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What is wrong with gender relations? Oh, well, I mean, there's I mean, so this much wrong with simultaneously gender amazing and yet crazy. Crazy. To me. Well, you know, the race has actually gotten much more inclusive. So oh. your wife can also be your husband. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very inclusive of couples of all kinds. Mm. Your wife can be your wife. Like it can be two wives, it can be two husbands. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, it sounds like one of the sort of interesting things you discovered traveling to all these different countries is sort of the nature of gender relations in each place and the way they look at marriage that way. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with Swedish stay-at-home dads. In Sweden, you get 18 months government-financed maternity or paternity leave. You can split it between a couple however you want, and men actually take it Mm -hmm. because your salary is being paid and there's less of a stigma about it. So While you would think that that makes gender roles more confusing, I think it makes them less confusing because they've had this certain flexibility in what gender means Mm -hmm. and which gender does what. Um, Whereas here in the States, we say that we're all for equality in a marriage, and yet the burden of raising children typically falls on a woman Mm -hmm. because we don't have that government support. So we pay a lot of lip service to those things, but we have no institutions in place to actually make it work. The way you describe that, it's also the the couple is sort of the unit there, right? And mm-hmm. you decide these 18 months, you sort of slide the scale of who gets what. But like that suggests that from the very beginning, you're deciding and you're explicitly talking about. Explicitly talking about. The division is, of labor. The division of the, labor mm-hmm. and the equality. And the division of labor in a marriage is also something I looked at a lot. Uh, not just with the Swedes, but in a polygamous relationship. A lot of things ended up being about the division of labor. Who's doing what between the wives, frankly, because the husbands don't do a lot of the work and the wives take on a lot of the burden. Tell me about the places where you met polygamous people. In Kenya and Tanzania. Mm -hmm. So I spent time with 
Maasai and some Buru tribes. Mm-hmm. I was using a translator a lot of the time. Right. And the translator was typically male. And he would lie oh. to me. Really? Yeah. He would not tell me what the women were saying. And how would you catch him doing that? Each of the times there was one woman who spoke enough English that she knew he wasn't saying enough. And I could tell because they would give me these long and detailed answers. And he would be like, they love having many wives. Not what they said. Yeah. And so we would have to fight him. We fought We fought the translator every time. And it was like me plus some of the tribe's women. And we would just gang up on him in both their language and in English until finally he was like, fine, I'm broken down. I imagine I that that's translate. the benefit of being in a polygamous relationship in the first place, right? Yeah. The power of ganging the pow- up. The power of ganging up and the collective power of just having more hands to do the work and to mm-hmm. take on this emotional division of labor. That's the other thing. In the States, we tend to think that it's just us. It's the two of us against the world. And we don't let people help us. We don't embrace the idea of community. And that was my takeaway from the polygamous tribes is that we need a community. Marriage takes community. It takes having marriage mentors and elders to actually talk to us about this and tell us what worked for them. My own parents, they had no good actionable advice for me, but no one did. Mm -hmm. It's not like we were, I was getting together with my aunties and they were sitting me down saying, this is how you do this. No one talked about my marriage. Whereas in every other culture, pretty much across the board, they're like, yeah, we sit down with our aunts and our grandmothers and they pass on wisdom in a way that we just don't hear. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about marriage till it goes bad, till we're near divorce. And my other gripe is that all of my friends only Instagram the happy parts of their marriage. So everyone's relationship looks like frolicking on a beach. But I mean, are you really going to Instagram the moment when you fall in a freezing mud pit? I did Instagram the moment that I found <laughs> that I almost fell in a freezing mud, mud pit. You're a role model. And I will Instagram it again. <laughs> Well, no, you're not going to Instagram the toilet seat being left up. But, like, you also don't have to go the other way. You don't have yeah. to Photoshop everything so that your life looks perfect mm-hmm. all the time. Because it looks so nice. Look at them going on vacation. Look at them cooking perfect Instagram-worthy dinners. We ordered pizza again for the third time this week. Uh-huh. I do Instagram when we order pizza because I think that's <laughs> aspirational. <laughs> that is really aspirational, actually. I feel, I feel really good about us ordering pizza three times a week. I'm also curious. It seems like you got the most explicit sex advice while being with the most religious people. Yes. The best sex advice really came from the most conservative, most religious people that I met. I mean, particularly within the Orthodox Jewish community in Jerusalem. And, you know, I I didn't know what I was getting into Mm -hmm. when I started interviewing these Orthodox women. Mm -hmm. And they were so open and so honest. And I think it comes from living in such close quarters with their family and with other women. One of the women I interviewed, they were in a beautiful high-rise building in Jerusalem, but her sisters lived on the same floor as her. And it was and with their husbands. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of idyllic because, like, the kids rode their big wheels around the hallways in between the apartments. And you, know, you could just tell that they really, they shared the struggle of their marriage. They shared advice with each other. And so our talk was very frank and very honest from the beginning. It was like... Tell me about married sex. And so in Orthodox law, you don't have sex during your period or for about seven days afterwards. And I also thought I was so naive. I go into it and I'm like, well, it's because you can maximize your fertility that way. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, they're like, it has to do with the fact under Jewish law, sex has to be good for the woman. And oh. so if the woman's not enjoying it, they don't feel like God is present 
in the union between man and wife. But why can't you enjoy period sex? You could enjoy period sex. I mean, this is just, it's, their theory is that the hormones are at their peak Mm -hmm. during this time of the month. And so a woman is likely going to enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. And it could go either way. You could love period sex. I like period sex. But either way, there's sort of a function of don't do it at certain times and make it really good at Make it really good when you do do it. And they don't touch. They don't touch for about two weeks either. They have a Mm -hmm. special bed that separates them. So you can't hug or kiss or touch or tickle or anything. Uh, But then she's like, when we come back together, it's fucking amazing. She didn't say fucking. I inserted (laughs) it in there. But it's amazing because not only are your hormones all like psyched to be doing this, but you haven't touched each other in two weeks. So the best sex advice came from like this combination of these Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem and then the very fancy French women Mm -hmm. who also say things like, Behave like your husband's mistress, which sounds so stupid. It's so damn French, and it's I don't so, know why. It's but so, no, it's so French. And like, <laughs> what does that even mean? And when they said it to me too, they were so damn French. I mean, they're just like they're a stereotype on top of a stereotype, <laughs> while smoking a thin cigarette and like sipping red wine and looking beautiful with their very short bangs. I thought that was awesome, but I kind of turned the tables on them a little bit, and I'm like, I like, I like it. I'm yeah. with you. I'm into this, but I think the man should do it too. Yeah. I mean, there's no good word, like male word for mistress. You could say lover, but that sounds gross. <laughs> so, but I think that both people should kind of act like this is still brand new and still exciting. And what can I bring, not just to the bedroom, but to the marriage to make it interesting? So what is the book experience like with him now? Yeah, so Nick read everything as I wrote it, and I took his advice to heart. And there were some parts that you know he didn't love, but he didn't veto anything. I was kind of mean to some of his ex-girlfriends at some point. I, t- I, I did take some of that out because that, that was unkind of me. Oh, that's good of you. Yeah. You know, those, those girls, they were, very, they were sweet girls. They, just, they love him so much. That's the difference between Nick and I. His ex-girlfriends genuinely just think he's the greatest guy on the planet. I'm like, you dumped them. And they still think he's so great. They call him all the time for advice, for help with their frequent flyer miles. And What's your relationship with them like? It's fine. Um, a lot of them... So I I had exes at our wedding. He had some exes at our wedding. I keep them at arm's length. But the interesting thing that I thought about when I was with the polygamous tribes is maybe this is a nice division of labor for me. Like maybe they can still make him feel needed in this great way and they're still friends and that's awesome and maybe I should let it all go. On the other hand, the terrors of as you just described that, I suddenly had this flashy moment that I was like, would being in a polygamous relationship feel like having all of the ex-wives present at all times? I think maybe it would. I think maybe it would. All of them there. All of the ex-wives, all of the ex-girlfriends in the room. But then, and I say this in the hmm. book too, it would have been kind of nice if, you know, when they get a second wife in the Maasai tribes, the older wife kind of gives them a manual, a verbal manual of like what the husband likes and doesn't like. And that would be nice if Nick's ex-girlfriends had compiled an encyclopedia (laughs) of his likes and dislikes, and he doesn't like it when you say the word fuck, and he likes missionary sex and these kinds of things. Before you're like a year and you're like, oh, that was the thing that was making you cranky all those days. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, he really he's very serious about putting the cap back Mm -hmm. on the shampoo. Because I had no idea. I really didn't figure that out till like last week, that that's why he was ornery every time he got out of the shower. (laughs) Because I didn't put the cap on the shampoo, and he didn't want to tell me. Sometimes you also don't realize until you're in a relationship what the things are that make you ornery, right? I don't think you realize until, and not even just a relationship. Like, I think you realize things in a relationship 
You realize things once you move in together, and mm-hmm. you realize new things once you're married. And I'm sure once you have the baby, you're going to realize all kinds of new things. There's going to be all sorts of new gross things that happen once this baby comes out of my body. Actually, so when I got pregnant, I went back to a lot of the women and asked them their advice for pregnancy and Mm -hmm. their advice for having kids. And, of course, the French women are like, we do it the best. And I'm like, all right, not you guys. Like, I'm sick of your advice. Like, (laughs) let's let's get some other people in here. And uh, the Masai and Sambruru were the best because they just kept telling me, they're like, put your baby in the dirt right away. (laughs) I mean, that's literally the... The opposite of what yeah. you do in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. they're like, I'll have a contest with you whose baby is healthier at nine months. My baby who sits in, in the dirt with the goats and the cows and the chickens. And your baby who you're Purelling. So interesting. I have to say, the first time that I read about your finding this strangely perfect human, I suppose strangely perfect for you, was you wrote two articles in L. The first one being why I bought myself an engagement ring. Yes. And then... Shortly thereafter, how I conjured my fiancé in three months flat. I think I did. I think I conjured him. Will you tell us about that? Yeah. I did buy myself an engagement ring. I was traveling with my my girlfriend, Leah, who's actually the editor of L.com. And we were in Tanzania together. And I saw this beautiful Tanzanite ring, which was, like, stupid expensive. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, God, I'd love that to be my engagement ring. She's, like, laughing at me. um, Because at that point, I'd come to the idea that, you know, I might not get married. And that's cool. And I'm like, I Were you buy- single at the time? I was single at the time. Yeah. And I'd broken up with the wrong guy. I'd broken up with the guy that I dated for two years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends were saying the things that people say to women when they're 34 years old, which is, oh, just marry him. Just just do it. He's No one's perfect. Maybe it's better to be divorced than to have never been married at all was my favorite one. Wow, that's dark. It was dark. Is that dark or is that just optimistic? I can't decide. That's either the most optimistic or most pessimistic thing I can think of. No, I think it's the darkest thing. I think it's dark and the woman that said it to me is now divorced. But if she thinks it's better to be divorced than ever married, then maybe that's... Then maybe it is optimistic. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. Anyways, so you're in that moment thinking... I'm in that moment. I'm like, fine, fuck it. I'm going to buy myself an engagement ring. And like Leia's laughing at me. She's like, great, because no one else is. And I'm like... (laughs) You're right. And so I bought it and I felt good. Like I felt like a badass. And that story went crazy. I had so many women emailing me after that Mm -hmm. being like, I just bought myself a ring too. Screw it. Yeah. I love this. I love you. And then at one point I was with my my crazy boss and I I wrote down all the things that I would actually want in a partner, which I hadn't done before. I'd kind of just like tripped into the next relationship that came along. What was on that list? Funny. Funny was the biggest one for me. Funny and smart. Loved to travel, adventurous, um, mm-hmm. and someone who got me. Like, I didn't feel like any of my ex-boyfriends got me, really. Um, and someone that valued my independence. Like, someone that was psyched for me to be me and to be this strong, independent woman. And then I forgot about the list. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. screw it. And then he showed up. And then I decided I was a witch. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, I just made you appear out of thin air. But he wasn't my type at all. Nick is this California hippie. He had long hair when we met. He kind of, like, when his hair is messed up and he first wakes up in the morning, he looks like young Neil Young. Still is kinda, that a problem? Still kind of hot young Neil <laughs> Young, but also, like, Neil Young after a bender. Um, I see. <laughs> and he wore hiking sandals. You know, the kinds that Germans yeah. wear with socks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, you're not, you're not my type at all. The full San Francisco. Full San Francisco. And my shrink laughed at me. She was like, your type really isn't working for you. Your type's a joke. When you got engaged... Do you use the engagement ring you already had? So I wear the other one in my right hand. I'm not wearing it right now because my fingers are giant. I have like these giant sausage fingers. 
but, from um, pregnancy? From pregnancy. Yeah, it's gross. But yeah, I usually wear that one on my right hand and I moved it over. I didn't actually want an engagement ring from Nick. And I told him that. And it was weirdly, even though he's this San Francisco hippie, he's also strangely conservative about some things. He wanted to get me a ring. It was really important to him. And I let him, and I, but I wanted to pick out something that was like very me. He ended up picking it out himself, and it was perfect. It's just it's this teeny tiny ring. It's the one you're wearing yeah, now. Yeah, it's the one I'm wearing now. Um, this the really small one. I wanted the wedding ring to be oh. bigger than the engagement ring. Oh, that's interesting. Because the wedding's more important than the engagement. Why should the wedding ring just be like this little thing? He picked it out. He designed the wedding ring himself, which was great. Oh. But then I wanted to get him an engagement ring because I thought it was nice to start our wedding on mm-hmm. equal footing to say, okay, we both have these rings and. I realized that women in South America also propose to men and they men in South America tend to wear an engagement ring until they get married. So I bought a ring, this like really cool copper ring. This is uh, when you're in Chile, in right? Chile. And I bought a ring. And then I proposed in the middle of the Atacama Desert in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I realized why men get so nervous when they propose because it's hard and it's kind of scary. And you're like, oh, my God, what if he says no? And he wasn't going to say no, but he could have. Could have gone. He'd already proposed to you by then. He'd already proposed to me by then. He could have gone, <laughs> but he could have gone running into the desert. He could have been like, all right, this is my moment of reckoning. Um, this woman won't even dance with me. And But he didn't. And then he wore an engagement ring and he moved that to his right hand. And he wears that one usually when he travels, mm-hmm. which is nice. I just think it was nice for both of us to have it. I like that. Yeah, to start our marriage off on the right foot. Well, thank you so much for being here, Joe. Thank We've you been for with having Joe Piazza. Me. How can people find you if they want to check out your book, your writing, whatever? We created a website actually called howtobemarried.us, mm. um, which .us is a much cheaper domain to get than .com, <laughs> but it's kind of cute. .us that has a bunch of information about the book and a bunch of articles about the book and all of the pictures from all of our travels, which are really cool. Oh my gosh, to look at. Yeah. Instantly going to go look at the wife carrying. And the book is available on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble right now. All right. I would love to have listeners call in and tell us what they have seen in other people or other cultures or other places that surprise them that they thought that's a different way of doing things. Could that be wise? Or in what moments have you thought, oh, that's a different type of marriage. I wonder if I can use it. Or being surprised by marriage. Yeah. Yeah. If they call in, then we can put that up on the website, too. That'd be fun. Yeah. Give us a call. Our voicemail line is always open. That number is 646-494-3590. And our guest this week has been Joe Piazza. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Sex Lives is produced by Lindsay Cradwell and Afim Shapiro. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.